Welcome to Single Serving Cinema with Tim and Tay, a podcast that looks at one critical scene in a movie every other week. We explore how the scene is constructed, what the scene achieves, and what it can tell us about the movie as a whole. I'm Tim. I'm Tay. How's it going, everybody? Film fans out there, we got a heck of an episode for you. Uh, we have a special guest with us today. Haley Malouin is with us. Uh, she's a PhD student in political science at Carleton University, currently studying circus and radical democracy. Uh, self-described psychotic fan of our movie today, The Handmaiden, um, and a dear friend of mine. So uh, welcome to the show, Haley. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Thank you so much for being on. We were talking about this a little bit before, but Tay and I have wanted to do this movie for a little bit, but we knew it would be better with a guest. We could lend some different perspectives on it. It's a movie a lot about perspectives, so I, I think it's good to have you on. And particularly, it's a movie with a big triple cross and we've got three guests so uh we're happy to have you here perfect i can't wait i don't even know how to begin breaking this down yeah <laughs> well just just to start we'll draw a line from uh from old boy we 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 did an audience vote for the other sort of eastern cinema pick and every and our audience uh went with old boy and that just sort of turned this into a park chan wook month uh, we had Old Boy from 2003 and now uh, The Handmaiden from 2016. This movie, based on the novel Fingersmith by Sarah Waters, tells the story of a pickpocket and a con man attempting to swindle a wealthy Japanese woman out of her inheritance through seduction and subterfuge. Uh, directed, as I said, by Park Chan-wook, The Handmaiden was released 2016 and stars Kim Tae-ri, Kim Min-hee, Ha Jung-woo, and Cho Jin-woong. Uh, it's available for rental on Apple TV. Uh, Canadians, though, you can stream it on Hoopla. Your experience may vary. Hoopla is the free library streaming platform, and I think everything's locked at 720p. So it's, it, it kind of does a disservice to how beautiful this movie is. So I, I would definitely rec- recommend a rental or picking up a, uh, a special edition like you did, Tay. Yeah, funny story with that, though. I sent you guys the photo of my beautiful copy that I purchased, but... It was region locked, so I actually can't oh, no. buy my copy. Yeah, y- usually they have a little notice that's like you will not yeah. be able to play this on a region mm-hmm. A player, and it didn't have that. But uh, I have this beautiful double box mm-hmm. of the Handmaiden that I cannot play. Yeah, just as a physical artifact, though, it's so beautiful just to hold. This film is all it about. Is. It's all. It's about opulence. It's about like fabrics and material, you know, and sort of opulent desire. So having a DVD copy of it or having a, a Blu-ray copy of it to hold is, I think, a very special thing for this film in particular. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, Tay, great did, point. Tay, did the special edition come with like a leather glove or like a bell or something? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I wish did it, it come came with, with a, a couple of those. Toy? Yeah. <laughs> you get your own dildo. <laughs> that would have been icing on the cake. <laughs> Yeah, I think that'd be a fun freebie to include. But yeah, that is, that is um, maybe a good way to broach the topic of uh, us getting into an erotic thriller. I mean, we're going to talk about what genre you actually want to call this, but uh, it certainly fits into uh, that subgenre, which is a uh, it has a checkered legacy in movie history, right? I think they're always seen maybe seen as a little cheap, and they've really fallen out of popularity since the late '80s when they were massive, like with. Um, Indecent Proposal, um, what's the Paul Verhoeven one? Um, oh, um, uh, I'm blanking on it. Fatal Attraction. Fatal Attraction, right? They're these really like targeted directly at adults, get them in the theater, sexy thrillers that I think are a lot of fun. 
and likely I'd say missing from the current cinematic landscape because getting adults in theaters for something that's just for adults isn't really a thing that happens that often anymore, right? You had, it wasn't even an erotic thriller, but just in terms of what they were aiming for, um, The Last Duel in the past year vastly underperformed. It really underperformed because they assumed that um, people between 40 to 70 were going to come out to see it, but between the pandemic and the changing nature of the theater, it really bombed. And it's a shame that almost all the adult fare right now is actually crossover fare, right? It's yeah. it's comic book IP. It's things that you could bring teenagers to. You could bring even slightly younger kids to. And I, I wouldn't say that that's the case with The Handmaiden. This is this is for adults. <laughs> yeah. I, there's not much. I can't really add much to that. It's, it's an adult movie. Yeah. I guess my take on that, too, is that... I think there's always an idea that uh, gay and lesbian films are going to be geared towards adults. And while this film definitely mm-hmm. is geared towards adults with the genital mutilation that goes on, the really long sex scenes, multiple sex scenes, um, mm-hmm. the language, it's in no way a children's film or even a teenager's film. But I do think that, um, you know, gay youth are always on the cutting edge of things. It's the reality mm-hmm. that, that like, gay counterculture is... Um, it's just doing something slightly more interesting than the compulsory heterosexual uh, mainstream culture. So I think that this mm-hmm. is a film that could really appeal to gay teenage youth. Um, I'm not advocating for children to go and see films that are deeply erotic <laughs> and that have, you know, someone's genitals being cut off at the end of the film. Spoiler alert. Um, but I think that, you know, there's a little bit of room there. And I think that this is one of those films that can really transcend that age gap because it is about um, themes that transcend adulthood, even though they're very uh, erotic themes, teenagers experience erotic desire as well, right? So, mm-hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely. Like, you know, use use your judgment. It's, it's whatever you're comfortable with and things like that. But I think you're right that this movie isn't particularly... Well, okay, maybe gratuitous is a word you could use to apply to it, but I also don't... I think it's... It's in conversation about the idea of pornography in a really yeah. interesting way. And I think so much of the, as we'll talk about, the sexuality and the sex in this movie is a part of character growth and not just necessarily something for the audience to ogle. Which is, I think, what elevates this above other films of this genre. Mm-hmm. And just mm-hmm. going back to that point, uh, I really think that Yes, you can approach this for, with a younger audience, and yes, I think there is a space for that. I just think that this movie is so maturely handled that there's so many layers that I just think it takes like a quite a not just uh, an older person but a mature person like to understand all the layers of insinuation mm-hmm. happening throughout this movie. It's a yeah. it's a very detail oriented movie, and it's we also haven't noted the runtime is insanely long, so. Yeah. I think you just need to have a mature audience member yeah. to really mm-hmm. absorb all that you need to absorb from a movie like this. Absolutely. There's so much. Yeah. And circling back to um, its release and how sort of erotic thrillers aren't necessarily something people bank on anymore. It was made for 8.8 million and it made 38.6 million, a definite, definite success. And it got a fair amount of awards attention, especially in the East. Um, Kim Tae Ri, who plays uh, Sookie, uh, this was her feature film debut. It was a wow. huge role. Great performance. I think, um, you might have to correct me on this, but I think yeah. it might have been her first 
uh, performance ever. Not just. I, I got I got that impression, but the only thing I could strictly find was that they said it was a feature film right. debut. So she may have been in shorts, or I know that she was a model prior to this. So oh, okay. if she did act, it may have been in commercials. It could have been in shorts. It could have been in in a television episode here and there. Nothing clearly, nothing to this depth. Like right, there's right. a lot going on. Her character's critical in terms of how these cons work, right? Because at a certain point when you think she's being conned, she's actually still conning us in the count. We'll we'll get into how this triple cross works because it's pretty complicated to lay out in an audio format. Um, but before we do, I just trying to hold up, hold up our format. We're so bad at this every time. Before we get really into the weeds, um, the tagline for this movie is, never did they expect to get into a controversial relationship, which I don't know if that's a a matter of translation from another tagline there's something missing here or there's something that doesn't really work for this one for me yeah when you posted that i was like is that a tagline or is that yeah a sentence of a synopsis a lot of this comes down to marketing too uh that's my take on it is with films that are like this that you know it film is a postmodern format in the sense that it's the complete integration of culture and capital so it wants mm-hmm. to make money that's the, the plain mm-hmm. way of saying that is that films only happen because they're making money despite of all the other things about them uh, one thing that sells is sex one thing that really sells is beautiful women having sex um another thing that really sells is this idea of forbidden desire like that's the erotic part right is that it's this sense of being illicit or being somehow wrong or grotesque um and I feel like this tagline, I think it is, in, it must be in translation, but I think that it's really playing into this idea of an illicit love. Interestingly, mm-hmm. in the film, the love isn't really illicit. What's illicit is yeah. no. <laughs> being con artists. Um, but yeah. I, I think this comes across as marketing. Mm-hmm. It, it doesn't sell the movie in an honest way at all. Mm-hmm. I, yeah, I, I think... feel like that's doing it an injustice. And I don't want to be too critical because i think you guys have both made the point it's probably a translation issue Mm. Uh, there's something that's not we're not getting but i just think it's an incorrect tagline yeah i think i think Haley kind of nailed it i think they are just sort of trying to position this as like there's going to be lesbian sex scenes in this and it's like it's forbidden it's controversial and then when you watch the movie it's like actually not really right like the (laughs) the crux of um of so much of the conflict in these scenes is a matter of who is conning who who is lying to who and not that like oh these two ladies shouldn't be doing this in in this time period and in this setting absolutely Um, when i I first reached out to Haley to talk about this that was one of the first things that we discussed is that the way that this film positions us as a spectator doesn't really allow for a taboo reading of their relationship it doesn't really create that scenario where we have to be like oh this is something that's like illicit that we shouldn't really be privy to seeing Mm -hmm. it never really feels like that it unless like you're watching it with like your your grandparents or something like that maybe yeah this is a well i mean one of the funny things that sort of lines up so i watched this at our local film house uh when it right it was going around theaters and the film house bears not a not a a it's 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 kind of similar to the reading space in this movie where it's only so many rows Right. And honestly, like it was me and maybe 10 other people Mm -hmm. (laughs) spread out. And like, you know, some of those scenes go on and you can hear 
the air the the quality of the air change right the static charge in the air some people getting uncomfortable some people think it gets funny reading into the the humor in these scenes or you know being direct targets for the eroticism and uh and and some of the more surprising turns in this movie like my shout out at the end of uh, of this episode but i think um Maybe a good way to dive into how sexuality is used in this. I found this great article in The New Yorker um, by Gia Tolentino. It's linked in the show notes. And there's a great point that she makes where she says, Sex is an essential tool in each character's deception, but the women, unlike the men, are wrenching themselves towards self-actualization. As Suki and Hideko try to deceive each other, they work themselves into a position to be vulnerable. Their role play ends up activating reserves of emotional instinct and physical lust. So I really like the idea that in this, the women... It's not the end goal is not discovering that they um, are attracted to one another or that they're lesbians. That's partway on the path to them realizing, well, as she said, self-actualization. They realize their agency and their power and their potential along this path. Whereas the men, it's their downfall in the end. Um, uh, the Count is um, is drugged and kidnapped by Hideko by, by sort of falling to his lust for her. And the uncle is taken down by simply wanting to hear that story secondhand from the Count. And uh, I think that's very well sort of realized in this script. Yeah, I, I think that something that's really exceptional about this film is that it's... This is going to sound like a cliche, but it's a con film that's about truth, capital T. And arguably, <laughs> you could argue that every film is about truth, capital T. But I think this mm. film really takes it, you know, like, by the horns. Because the question throughout is who is being honest to whom and for what reason. And mm -hmm. so the um, lesbianism functions as a part of the premise rather than being a part of motivation. They start gay, they end gay. It's a through line. It's like, mm -hmm. it's not set dressing in that it's not important. It's, it's fundamental to the plot working, but it's not something that they have to discover or come to terms with what it actually functions as is a tool of, truth of self-actualization as the as the article says so mm -hmm. through understanding and taking up the space of being lesbians in relationship with one another it allows them to push against a form of society that is totally oppressive to women uh totally oppressive to gay people uh totally oppressive to um in this context to korean people um who are being mm -hmm. uh, who are oppressed by japanese colonizers at the time um so what this film really neatly and it's almost sentimental but the film doesn't let it become sentimental is that it it sort of informs you that gayness is in safe hands here that gayness is not a problem here uh the problem is you, you know what what can you do with that what can you do when you when you have limitations put on you but gayness is never a problem so i think as a queer person and i hope other queer people feel this way that when you watch this film you feel like you are in safe hands uh, there's not going to be some sort of sudden... Uh, the constant trope is that lesbians always die in films because like we, can't, we condemnation. can't have them. Like a condemnation. Yeah, yeah. your gaze. Yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, so there's something, despite it being incredibly graphic, incredibly erotic, and very, I think, if not scary, at least very uncanny and unsettling, mm -hmm. um, the, the line is always towards truth, self-actualization... Um, and, and ultimately happiness, the happiness of mm -hmm. these two women. Yeah. No one's yeah. threatened for their sexuality. They're threatened for, uh, their wealth or other targets, other, other things that they possess. No yeah. one is victimized here because of, because of how they're identifying. 
And this this is going to be a generic comparison because I don't have a direct one. But, you know, when you're watching that initial sex scene that we end up coming back to at another point later in the film, in I feel like in most movies that are that are seemingly treating sexuality as taboo or like you go into a movie thinking that you're you'd be worried about the characters in the scenario you'd be kind of worried about them being caught by other characters or you'd worry about you know some form of harm coming to them because of Mm -hmm. these actions and you guys are right you just don't have that sense that something is going to happen negatively because of this experience and i think that this movie you know there's so many movies that use sex scenes as some I don't know, like meaningless point of Titillation. showing a relationship like come together. It's almost like a a story cheat, like a narrative mm-hmm. cheat. Uh, and in this, I feel like it's the exact opposite. Like every sex scene matters so much to who these characters are at the certain at the very specific point of the story. And the fact that we get both perspectives at different points is really important too. And in a movie of consistent deceit between the central four characters who are all literally living a lie as their own characters i think that it's really important that like the sex scenes between hideko and suki are the first and maybe only moments in the first half of the film where truth is actually present where they're being 100 percent themselves and truthful and it's not them putting on any kind of facade which is interesting because they initiate the sex act through a, a facade of yes. Suki yeah. instructing Hideko on what the Count will do on their wedding night. But that really quickly falls away, and it becomes mm-hmm. almost, they become self-conscious that they're using that. And there's a great line where uh, Hideko says, yes, please keep doing it like the Count would. Clearly at that yeah. point we know... Yeah, yeah that were beyond like the count is like he like does not matter anymore like clearly mm-hmm. like they both realize that they're they just want to sleep together and, and they're just moving through that facade for that purpose um and and this is one of these areas where the humor of this film comes into play and it's so good at bringing humor yeah. in at these heightened moments yeah. um because you know like <laughs> Sex is a goofy thing to do. Like it, it's not this, this, uh, this. It's entirely deep, like emotional. Like everyone's so intense all the time. You know, sex is a is a kind of experience where any kind of emotion can emerge at any time. And this film really makes space for that. And I think that even though there's this facade of them of Suki instructing Hidako, uh, move when they move so quickly on from that. It, it it creates space for that, as Taylor has said, to be um, a scene that is in- integral to the plot rather than mm-hmm. just an aside. And this reminds me of Laura Mulvey's essay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Sorry, go ahead. It reminds me of Laura Mulvey's essay about visual pleasure and narrative cinema, which is a foundational feminist film text from the 70s, where she says that women usually appear on screen only for moments of erotic contemplation. So the image of women on screen will actually pause narrative it actually takes away from narrative and the audience mm-hmm. gets to actually put themselves into the position of the protagonist there, the male audience that is, and form a sort of parasocial relationship with the women on screen that is erotically coded. Um, mm-hmm. And Mulvey has a problem with this. She says that this is, um, that this is an issue with film. Uh, what Handmaiden does is it puts it on its head where all of the moments of eroticism are incredibly important to the plot. And yes, we are brought in through POV shots 
into the sex scene, but that is not mm -hmm. to replace these women and it's not to relegate them to some sort of purely imagistic space. Mm -hmm. It's actually to have us empathize with them more and more and more in a way that helps us get on side with their ultimate betrayal of the Count later on. Yeah, that's, that's I mean, that, that draws into comparison um, something I know Tay and I have talked about in, in our film club when looking at uh, Portrait of a Lady on Fire and sort of what it does with the male gaze or the concept of it and whether or not it can it's actually using your ever be idea. fully... Yeah, and whether it can actually be fully removed from. And there's so many times in this movie where you have a a very clear female gaze of one of the other characters, both in the sequence we're going to talk about when, when a, a seeming betrayal is brought to the surface, but also, yeah, throughout the sex scenes and things like that. I also want to note that, like, I think you made a great point that uh, sex is inherently not cinematic, <laughs> which calls into question the way that the entire history of erotic thrillers have decided to depict it, right? And who's got agency and how slick it is and how um how much rhythm and grace there is to things that maybe don't always have a set rhythm or or a great deal of grace yeah, absolutely. and i think a, a comparison point for me is blue is the warmest color which again female made female led all these things perspectives that i i can never embody myself but the way that i always read that film was that it's the the director trying to say this this is the actual contrast to what lesbian porn looks like absolutely and this is what this movie is like. All the sex scenes go on longer than maybe anybody would want them to, <laughs> right? And they appear and they sound different than than the, than these types than this type of content has been coded to in um, mainstream pornography. Um, mm -hmm. So I think all these things, especially this movie too, based on Hideko's upbringing, making commentary on where por pornography um, branches off from reality. Absolutely, um, and I think this film. I think we can take this film as very being very seriously in conversation with pornography as another genre of film. Mm. I think it, I think so. it I think is trying to bring itself hand. very closely to pornography, both uh, diegetically, like through the actual narrative, but also in the way that um, the way that it it really readily uses tropes in order to elicit a sexual encounter. The way that in porn they'll be like a pizza guy who comes over mm -hmm. and he has to fix the TV and then they're having sex. It's not so explicit in this, but there's a certain sense of, oh, they're thrown together. They spend a lot of time highly isolated and then they just start having sex because what else do you do when you're attracted to someone in a situation like this? Um, so I think it is trying to bring itself into relationship, but as we sort of hinted at, it's very, um, it's a very nuanced and it's a very complicated relationship to porn. There's clearly mm -hmm. a very strong anti-porn stance in this film about about the exploitation of porn, particularly of uh, women and young girls. Mm -hmm. And we see that through when we get the flashback of Hidego's life growing up and we see the um, uh, the library and the, and the when she does the performances of pornography mm -hmm. for her uncle. Um, but there's also um, a sort of implied rather than explicit pro-pornography stance through the fact that Hidego is someone who has been highly isolated. She has no friends, virtually no family. Mm -hmm. um, she has immersed herself in this literature in a way that you can, you can understand that as something that has allowed her to explore her sexuality pre-narrative. So in mm -hmm. the di diegetic world, but pre-narrative, uh, we can understand that Hidego has discovered she's a lesbian because of reading this lesbian pornography. Even though it is exploitative, there has been something there that has provided her with a sense of agency. And then when she and Suki um, have sex for the first time, in the second flashback to the sex, 
we yeah. see that Suki is is really is quite impressed with Hidako. She says, yeah. "Oh my, you must be a natural. Like, how do you know all this stuff?" Well, she knows it from reading the porn. Like, she yeah, yeah. she's been practicing. <laughs> she's for you. an expert. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so there's something quite sweet and charming about that about how impressed Suki is. But what that comes from mm-hmm. is the fact that Hidako has had this exploitative and complicated relationship. Well, and it's almost just when she when she takes it out of that male space when she, when it's yeah. no longer for the yes for the effect of making her uncle money again like they're monetizing this entire thing her uncle does eventually like by the end of the film he does just sort of say like i'm just an old man who likes dirty stories but the entire for both of the men the entire function of these things these cons and what they're doing to these women is to make more money and to have more power first and foremost Mm -hmm. um but before we move too far away i do just want to bring up i have a i have a quote from Sarah Waters in another article that I'll link, she says, uh, where she's sort of talking about how, how the movie was changed from the book and especially the idea of having this story told or directed by by a man, by Park Chan-wook. She said, though, ironically, the film is a story told by a man. It's still very faithful to the idea that the women are appropriating a very male pornographic tradition to find their own way of exploring their desires. Yeah. And uh, I think I think that's that's no small feat by Park Chan Wook from especially from his perspective and 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 w- you know whatever his history is with with this type of stuff. Yeah, I, I did just want to before we got uh, go into our scene say a bit more about Park Chan Wook and I know Tim mm-hmm. and I said a lot about him in our old boy podcast. Uh, watching, I think it's always really rewarding for any film viewer to watch movies from the same director in close proximity to one another because you mm-hmm. see similarities and you see very specific detail details come out of a filmmaker's work if they're if they're at the skill level of Park Chan-wook and very few filmmakers are um we talked about how he's able to use almost every kind of every type of shot in when filming mm-hmm. a movie last week or like when we did old boy mm-hmm. i found i found that very similar and we were just kind of just to branch off of the sex scene conversation like the way he shot the sex scenes was i don't know if i could if i could name a film that does any sex scene better in terms of how the way it's shot. Um, but also what I was really picking up from old boy, uh, you know, a couple of weeks ago when we watched it and also this, the screening of the handmaiden is his use of sound effects, his use of very intimate close-ups, extreme close-ups at times, but then also mm-hmm. balancing it with how loud he makes sound effects that shouldn't be loud versus sound effects that he chooses to de- uh, dull Mm-hmm. Um, a very specific example is um, when, like, the, when they're on a boat later in the film, he chooses to let the sound of the water completely go pretty quiet, and instead it's focused on like sounds like the touching uh, between like hands or mm-hmm. the clenching of like the wristwatch or um, these well, tactile oh, personal things. These really tactile things, uh, but they all matter and they all contribute to this level of sensuality that the film uh, conveys to especially between the two women but even mm-hmm. just uh and this is an old boy too the cigarettes the way he rolls yeah. the cigarettes and he smokes the cigarettes every sound is so heightened uh mm-hmm. around the sound effects of the cigarettes or uh and of course like things that are like uh items in the movie that are of sexual importance like the bells at the end yeah the, the, are bell, given the like bells a, is that's that's a real funny way to end this movie. Like I I I do yeah. Like talking about about uh, director Park, I mentioned it last time. I'll bring it up anytime we watch something that isn't a Western production. 
They're so much better at mixing in any tone they want. This movie has horrific sequences. It has hilarious sequences. It has really sexy sequences. Um, it has great mystery. It has tragedy. And it turns on a dime. And more than once, he will just punctuate it with, like, literally like a sex joke. And, uh, and I find it so much fun and so refreshing. Yeah, just so you guys know, I'm going to put the sound of those bells at the end of this podcast. <laughs> we should have it throughout. Just yeah. fade our voices out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I was listening very carefully for the correct audio bite, and I was like, "Yeah, I can, I, I can do it with or without their sex sounds in yeah. it too. I can, I can choose to include or not include." Something I want to talk about before we get into the scene is the colonial framework of this film, which mm. I think is one of the major differences from the book. Even though, so Sarah Waters' book is um, set in Victorian England. Obviously, Victorian England is a major uh, imperial force on the map, mm-hmm. but it's set in a domestic or an international, intranational rather, um, mm-hmm. setting. It's set in a domestic and international setting. So we're not looking at colonial forces uh, engaging with, with one another. We're looking at different types of class and how class informs things like gender, sex, desire, uh, mm-hmm. employment, uh, illegality, illicity, etc. Um, Director Park, he brings this into the same time period, the 1910s, which would be Victorian England, but because it's mm-hmm. in Korea, there's a, it's a profoundly different setting, because at that mm-hmm. time, Korea was a protectorate of Japan. Um, and I think that this history is actually incredibly important to, um, to understanding what, what is happening in this film, and, and the political, um, considerations that are that are at play here that are not just this is maybe a taboo relationship even though as we've talked about the relationship isn't presented as taboo but at the time it still would be taboo um Mm -hmm. but there are other political factors at play here particularly the relationship between japan and korea at that time so yeah Yeah, just just on that point Haley, i just feel that because of the time period we as an audience just kind of assume that lesbianism is going to be seen as taboo I feel like that's what my interpretation was when I went in being like, okay, this movie takes place in 1950s. Okay, so this is going to be a really touchy subject matter. And it ends up not being that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah. yeah, we mentioned like it was marketed in one way. And then when you get in, you're like, oh, this isn't about like being closeted or, or you know, hiding from, from homophobes or something like that. Yeah, right? absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, Continue though, Haley. I just wanted to add that in. Yeah, no, I think that's a really, really good distinction too. That, that, that the idea of what a period drama is for the audience colors how we engage with this film, and in a way, maybe uh, Park is hoping that we will go in with that expectation. So that's another layer. That's another con that can be played on the audience is that we think it's going to be one thing, it's not, it, then we think it's going to be another thing, and it's not, and there's, we're guessing all the way through about what the mm-hmm. film actually is, what it's actually doing. Mm-hmm. I, do, I do think that, like, the Japanese occupation of Korea is used as a setting and used rather subtly throughout it, right? Like, there isn't, there aren't political forces at play. It's more like, here's a fertile setting with a lot of... Um, alignment that you can make because i do think there's tons of uh dichotomies that this movie gets into right like between uh suki and hideko there's 
I love how like they're at the movie again, as you're saying, they're kind of getting bored. Like they keep swapping these roles of being like mother and child, master and servant, giver and receiver, like owner and doll when they're dressing each other up. And I think the, the occupation setting too lends itself to the ideas of a male domination of a more submissive force, um, oppression, control, suppression, as you put in some of the notes here, like, um, the term was uh, Japanization. Yeah, Japanization. Jap- so Japanization. this was the major project of yeah. Japan's occupation of Korea at the time. Uh, it was an assimilation project. So mm-hmm. Japan has been invading Korea since the 1500s or so. Like it's not a new thing. What's distinct? What's distinct about uh, the 1910 invasion? So this would be maybe a couple of years before the. Uh, before the handmaiden takes place, which I think is supposed to be around 1915, 1916. Um, What's distinct about it is that that they sign a treaty that is seemingly legally binding. And this is the political science student in me coming out, so you're going to have to bear with Mm -hmm. me for a second. Um, uh, Korea becomes a protectorate of Japan. Um, And that's something that still happens today. Puerto Rico is a protectorate of the U.S. And it's a completely Mm -hmm. uh, paternal relationship. And that is the explicit language that's used because a protectorate nation have no political powers at all. They are not allowed to govern themselves. They do not, they essentially don't exist on the international plane. Um, I was going to say, isn't it like pretty much political erasure? It is. It's political erasure. Their people can't vote. They don't have control over the resources. It's like being being a child, like being assigned as a ward to someone else. Like, national identity is out the window. Yeah. Sorry, yeah. No, it's okay. So you're essentially a second-class citizen. So that is the context of uh, the Korean indigenous class in Korea during the Handmaiden. So Suki is Korean, Hidako is Japanese. She's part of the ruling class. Um, even though, as we see, she's incredibly limited in what she can do, she is still a Japanese woman who is part of the occupying force of a nation that has been entirely infantilized by the occupying mm-hmm. force. And we see that kind of... Uh, Tim, as you said, this idea of whose mother, whose child emerging in their relationship, it starts it starts as, as sort of very rigid. We see when they're dressing each other up and then Hidago is sort of ordering Suki around. But then Suki says that ladies are the dolls of maids. So we, we see this sort of one way idea of, of that relationship being... Um, fully utilitarian but then as they Mm -hmm. become closer they start to turn that relationship on its head in a really beautiful way and there's Mm -hmm. that really juicy line that suki says about how she wishes she had milk in her breast so she could feed hidako um Mm -hmm. i think that like that's the that's a perfect example of how this colonial relationship is infused into their uh, their intimate relationship, their personal relationship, mm-hmm. but then they do something with it because they are finding their power, because they are self-actualizing. Their relationship is not only personally illicit, but it is actually politically illicit, not because they're gay, but because it's a Japanese woman and a Korean woman, mm-hmm. and they are defying that colonial paradigm. Much more of a class conflict than than a uh, than a than a sexuality conflict. Absolutely, or like that. absolutely. Yeah. And yeah, we, it should be noted, like, got tons of great research here, and I think we're making a ton of good points. None of us here are Korean or Japanese, so I'm sure yeah. there's a great bulk of context and uh, and really juicy stuff that, that we're missing out on just as a part of our perspective. But this stuff is still just in terms of, like, film analysis and 
how how the the relationship between Korea and Japan in this setting is mirrored in the relationships between the men and the women and between the women themselves is a uh, really interesting stuff to dig into. Yeah, and I I like that you guys made that point that the film it's not really about these subjects, but these uh but this form of identity informs the whole movie or like the uh mm-hmm. the the restrictions on identity inform the whole movie and you get that uh one of my favorite scenes in the movie is when uh suki is first brought to lady hideko's like house the mansion and it's it's not only like cinematography wise really interesting because it's like bombardment of shots and Mm -hmm. it's all these crazy cuts it's really fast editing and it's it feels like she's being dwarfed by this new space but um, what I liked about that is just how it kind of gives you the information about the uncle and then you don't really meet him. And then you just mm-hmm. kind of are left to sit with all this uh, like context of what where the world is at this point. And then you kind of fill in the details as the story goes. Yeah. It doesn't really like berate you with these ideas of this, these setting, these, uh, these pieces of information about the setting. It's more about like, here it is, here's the setting. And now like fill in the world with the narrative. And I, I just thought that was really effective. The house is so excellent, too. And I forgot about this part of it. So I'm so happy you brought it up. That mm. the house, they take great pains. The housekeeper, who's actually the the uncle's first wife, who he divorced so he could marry yeah, Japanese right. noble woman. So she's another woman who's, who's in this mix as being um, oppressed by this awful, disgusting man. Mm-hmm. Um, as she explains, the house is the only house in Korea that is part Japanese, part Western. And so we have mm-hmm. here not only the Japanization of Korea going on, so the erasure of Korean culture uh, in favor of imperial Japanese culture, but also we see here it's problematized further by Japan's proximity to whiteness, particularly um, in the early 20th century uh, between the, the alliance between Germany and Japan. Japan were called honorary whites by the German Nazis who were in power, who obviously wow. are white mm-hmm. supremacists. Yeah. So we have this infusion here of we not have not only race and class playing up between Japanese and Korean people, but also this larger looming idea of whiteness, white supremacy, the West, which as we know, because we exist in the current moment, we, we understand what occurred, what is still occurring around white supremacy. Mm-hmm. So this inflection of bringing Japan and and uh, Jap- Japanese culture and Western culture together as two forces that are controlling and erasing the indigenous Korean culture uh, really, really throws Suki through a loop when she first arrives. Yeah. And they give her mm-hmm. a Japanese name as well, right? They call her, yeah. your name mm-hmm. is Tamako here and you speak in Japanese. Mm-hmm. Then, of course, she meets Hidako, who only wants to speak in Korean to her because she's sick of Japanese. Mm-hmm. So yeah, their yeah. relationship... Which is so funny. Yeah, which is, which is hilarious. Their relationship becomes illicit, again, because of the very language they use. Because Korean language was banned in official settings. It was banned mm-hmm. to produce, to write in Korean. It was banned to publish yeah. books in Korean. It was a complete erasure of a language. So the mm-hmm. fact that they're speaking in Korean is profoundly important. Obviously, the actors are Korean, so it makes more sense for them yeah, to yeah. speak in Korean rather than Japanese. But there is something political going on there as well. Yeah, and I, I think it's worth noting, too, that the... I mean, just to briefly, because we should move to the scene soon, <laughs> but briefly touch upon the amazing production design in this and the costumes and all the fine touches. The Count um, almost exclusively dresses in Western clothing. He's yeah. wearing real nice three-piece suits, I'm not really sure how to analyze that off the top of my head. It's not something I dug into, but I, I realized that, yeah, like the uncle, you know, is really trying to um, 
prop himself up as as Japanese, and uh, and the women both go from you know sort of Japanese formal wear, but also also more more traditionally Korean clothes, depending on the setting that um, um, Suki is in. But the Count is wearing Western style three piece suits throughout most of the movie. I think that's a really good point, and what that brings up, I think the Count is a really fascinating figure who, because Hideko and Suki are so fascinating, we can sort of forget about him, but he, he's, a, he's an incredibly fascinating figure because he mm-hmm. is performing a long con. He has, he is a Korean farmhand who has presented himself that he is um, a sort of uh, fallen Japanese noble who is a little bit roguish, you know, he's a, he's a master painter, he's a forger, Mm-hmm. But with all of that, he still is presenting that he is, you know, blue blood Japanese aristocracy. And that's how mm-hmm. he ingratiates himself to uh, Hidako's uncle. Mm-hmm. Um, so his long con is is one of also completely erasing his own Koreanness. And when Hidako mm-hmm. betrays him at the end and tells the uncle, just so you know, this guy that you've been taking great pains to act so Japanese around and you put a, a little waver in your voice to sound mm-hmm. like a Japanese nobleman... Uh, he's a Korean farmhand, and so yeah. there's there's something there where the the uncle is shamed by his own racism. The count's entire life falls apart because his sort of race play um, is is revealed as a as a con. Mm-hmm. So, the, I think the count is also at a site of um, this tension between Japanese and Korean mm-hmm. cultures, but also as you say, Western cultures with with the clothing as this idea of uh, aspirational, you know, there's an aspirational quality to him. I wonder if he sort of could be read as the ultimate sort of representation of capitalism in this movie. Because he does seem the most money focused. He says more than once, you know, he, um, he wants to have enough money where he doesn't worry about the price when he's ordering wine. And when he was younger, he got into, he broke into that society as a con man by simply working horrible jobs and saving up a month's wages to have one meal and I mean, there's the very funny scene where he confronts uh, Suki, and and basically says like he's uh, he's aroused at the idea about how much money he's gonna get from from Hideko once they pull the con off. So really, like, really lining up his his sexuality and his lust and desire with money. But again, at the end of the movie, it is his lust that is his downfall. It's his most vulnerable moment when when Hideko uh, takes advantage of him and uh, and and dopes him up. And what's interesting there, just to speak about the Count very briefly, just a little bit more, he also confesses to Hidako that he actually has fallen in love with her, or he, he doesn't mm. quite go that far, but he says, like, I could, you know, maybe see us being together if you wanted to be my wife for real, if you, mm-hmm. what do you think? Like, just kidding, unless you want to. Like, he he gets quite vulnerable and he can't quite sort of say it, and he hides behind this um, veneer that he's put on. He has a bit of a dapper. protest too much leading up to that, right? They they have all these conversations where he's like, "I'll pretend you're a different woman. You pretend I'm a different guy. Yeah. We have to make out so that so that Sookie sees us and believes the con." Yeah. Um. And I don't really, I never really buy it, right? And Absolutely. I think and it you, doesn't. Yeah. It, yeah. When you go back to the first time that you see him watching Hidako perform, that's how you know he's really into her because he's mm-hmm. earnestly there, like overwhelmed by his desire mm-hmm. for her and so he's almost conning himself into thinking he doesn't really like her but he does and he and he knows he says to her i know you're gay i could know i know i could never actually seduce you but let's just pretend for a bit and i'll make you free his downfall is the fact that he really thinks he could turn her he thinks he could yeah. make her straight mm-hmm. by having sex with her um 
and so and so his fascination with his own um his own con i think is also part of his downfall there he really thinks he can fake it till you make it yeah i i think the scene where he actually confesses that he does have feelings for hideko is really ironic though because like you guys have made the point he's pretty much the epitomization of capitalism in this film and in this in this scene before he talks to hideko he's in bed with what money yeah he, just money. Covers, he covers himself with the money i love there's that great shot where you see both of their hotel rooms mm-hmm. and she's yeah. getting she's getting her her little you know poisonous drink ready for yeah, him opium. and he's just He's just and he's laying on the bed in, of money in, in Japanese, you know, notes. He right? fully that's was Scrooge so McDuck, fun. like just yeah, fully yeah. immersed. And that's just the only time we see him. It's from a, it's a very long shot, and he's not alone. But it's the only time we see him where he is alone. Mm-hmm. Other than that, he's always right. he's always on the make. He's always with someone that he's trying to. He has an agenda with everyone. He's else. always he's always acting like this. Let's let's call it what it is. This is a phenomenal performance as a person who does get kind of sidelined, but behind two even more higher profile performances. But the fact that almost every scene, you're right. Every other scene, he knows he's being watched and he's affected this very suave. He's always very carefully taking off his hats and putting them back on yeah. and leaning against something and wearing suits very well. And uh, yeah. I think that's a nice little touch. The actor makes that you can tell the character is acting just a little bit as well. He has, he's learned to do this to fit into the society. Yeah. yeah I, I thought it was a really a good performance. Excellent performance. Sorry. So funny, so funny. So I we just, said yeah. we agreed. Yeah. He's a real goof. Yeah. And what I like about him, I don't, I don't mean to venerate him beyond the two female leads because I think they are the stars of the show. But I think mm-hmm. another thing that's great about his performance is that he is incredibly happy playing third build. He does a really, really yeah. good job of being set dressing when he needs to be set dressing. There's no sense of a love triangle going on between maybe Hidako will choose him because he's valuable because he's a man on screen. There's none of that crap. He he mm. really is. He is third build. He is male supporting actor, um, and he does it phenomenally. I think mm. I think it is probably my favorite performance by a man in uh, in contemporary film. I would say. Mm-hmm. Wow. Uh, yeah that's i mean it's high praise but I, I think he earned it it's a really funny really specific and you're right he's not making any effort to overshadow or or play out play outside his zone but uh with that we are we are very much behind schedule let's <laughs> let's dive into the scene <laughs> well so yeah for the scene today um and just to go off that last point i had a really hard time writing this synopsis without using the phrase love triangle Mm-hmm. I kept running into it and being like, but it's not a love triangle. So I, no. I don't know why I'm keep, I keep running into this. But so today I have two time codes. One is for the extended version. One is for the theatrical version, depending which one you watched. Um, for the theatrical version, our scene takes place at 5132 and goes to one hour, three minutes and five seconds into the film. For the extended version, just to be really confusing, uh, this takes place at an hour, 24, an hour and 24 seconds into the film and goes to one hour, 14 40 seconds into the film so it's about a 14 minute scene 12 uh, 12 to 14 minute scene depending which version you're watching we we cheated and did another sequence <laughs> yes it's a it's a sequence it's not just one scene um we are <laughs> cheating again this week it's our podcast we'll do what we want <laughs> we um, do stop and- listening <laughs> to be fair i also in- told tay that this was the scene i wanted to do mm-hmm. we I deferred said, to the guest this is the scene i'm doing Whatever you're talking about, that's fine. But this is what I'm talking about when I go on your podcast. 
when I was watching this though, I was like, I could do any scene in this movie and probably yeah. fulfill enough to do the podcast, like mm-hmm. almost I mean, any we've moment. For an hour about other scenes in the yeah, film, so right? right. <laughs> so in this scene for today, though, um, this is when Uncle Kazuki leaves for a week to visit his gold mine, uh, and the plan for Hidako and the Count to elope to Japan commences. Uh, after getting married to the Count, the relationship between Hidako and Suki is seemingly strained by the secrecy they must abide by. And while following through with the plan to leave Lady Hidako at a mental hospital, it is Suki who is then betrayed at the last minute by the Count and Hidako and is confined to the mental hospital in Lady Hidako's place. Mm-hmm. This is, um, yeah, this is juicy stuff. It's really the fulcrum point for this movie. And it should be noted this movie, you know, it has um, three parts and it really holds up to multiple viewings because then you can know what's going on going forward. And a lot about what we're going to talk about here is stuff that's made clear in part two. It's essentially, I think, like to, to really try to lay out this triple cross. The first version through, like the audience that's with Suki at this point, believes that Suki and the Count are about to con... Uh, Lady Hideko and leave her in a mental institution and take her riches. And then in action, you find out that actually Suki is being left under the name of Lady Hideko at the mental institution and Hideko and the Count are leaving with the riches. And she's getting her freedom. The Count is getting half her money. And then in after fact, you find out that (laughs) Lady Hideko and Suki um, came to terms with one another um, under the cherry tree. Um, in just the most macabre and funny scene yeah. in the movie, I'd say. Like a slapstick, almost suicidal hanging. It's wild that that works. That's, um, one, of, like, that's one of the best yeah. examples I can think of, of yeah. if uh, it's like comedy in a yeah. wide and tragedy mm-hmm. in a close-up. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely, yeah, wow. that's what it is. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, then, and then, yeah, in retrospect, you realize that, yeah, Sookie is in on it, and they're playing an even longer con to overthrow the count and have their freedom and the money and everything. And it's all overlapped. You, you, they're essentially just conning you, the, the viewer the first time through because there's many layers as to who the actual victim is. And I think that this is a great call, uh, Haley on, on having us choose this one. Why did you want to talk about it? For me, uh, there are two main things about this. The first is that it is the big, the first big bait and switch, um, we have an early moment where we are brought on side with Suki. After she is brought to the manor house, we get a sort of flashback to her, her uh, where she grows up, and she says, I'm not actually a maid, I'm a pickpocket, and I've been a pickpocket since I was five, my mother was a pickpocket. And we get, the, we get the story of how the Count comes to this sort of family band of thieves that she works mm. with, um, and, and sort of sets up this kind of how she's, he's going to get her into the house and they're going to carry out their plan. So we already think as an audience that we know what the double cross is. We already think we know what's going on. In essence, what, what Dr. Park is doing here is that he is, he is playing with dramatic irony in a very complex way. So we think that we are in on the dramatic irony. We think we know something mm-hmm. Hidako doesn't because we know what Suki knows. Then we find out later on that we don't actually know what's going on because we only know what Suki knows and Hidako knows what's going on. And then we find out later on that there's this that there's this triple cross. So I like this this scene or the sequence rather because it is the big bait and switch where we realize, oh, 
this is what this film is about. Mm -hmm. uh, before that moment, this sequence really plays almost melodramatically in the sense that it is, um, it seems that it is leading to something inevitable. There's a tragic inevitability to what's going on, particularly in the car on the way to the mental hospital. Suki is crying while looking at Hidako, and we, we mm -hmm. assume that's because she loves her, but she is betraying her. Um, and then when we get to the gates, we realize that everything that we've thought is wrong. Yeah. And also, not only that, but in the sequence, we've been given clues that things aren't what they seem. But because you think you know what's going on, you sort of dismiss those. You're like, okay, well, we see this noose in the cherry tree. We see them holding hands. We see them kissing. That's just all... We have to like sort of put that onto the back burner because we think we know what the con is. And then you realize, oh, I don't know what the con is. And all of these clues have been here to, to hint at me that I don't really know what's going on. So it's like the bottom falls out for the audience there. The yeah, other like, thing... Like... Mm -hmm. I just say, yeah, like, so the conflict in this is seemingly, will Suki let this happen to Hideko even though she loves her? Absolutely. And then you're right. They pull the rug on you. And I just, I love that, like, as you go through this, you're, from the camera, as far as it's directed, you're in Suki's perspective, but you only know so much as the count, it turns out. Yes. The entire time, the audience and the count are actually aligned. Like, the stuff in the car where she's crying that's an act for the count because once you mm -hmm. have the full scope of the movie you realize okay there's like four layers of subterfuge going on here about everyone who thinks they're acting for everyone and the audience is the ultimate mark in Absolutely, it, which, I think, yeah. which i think is sorry to, to pun but the mark of a great con movie mm -hmm. yeah. yeah that's what i was gonna say like doesn't it feel good that in a movie full of characters that are supposed to be really good at deceiving each other that we are deceived by all of them yeah. Except yeah, for, it's incredibly I guess, satisfying. the uncle. The uncle and is, like, it, pretty... Like, we're, we have all the transparency towards the yeah. uncle's situation. But other, the, the three characters, we're deceived by almost the entire mm -hmm. time. It feels good. And, and you're right, Haley. Like, there, there's multiple things where they do just drop their, like, there's the noose. You don't really know, outside of, like, the story about her aunt, you don't know what significance that could play otherwise. Or after the Count and Lady Hideko are married, she holds out her hand for this vial of something you've never heard of. And it's played from Suki's perspective and you are just kind of like, that's a, that's a, that's a, well, that's a flag. We'll see that later, I guess. Mm -hmm. Right. There are these little things where, you know, the movie isn't done, right? Suki's not just going to be in this mental institution there. We know we've got more runtime to go, but I have no idea what direction this is going to go in. I, I think going into this movie, the very first time my thoughts at this point were there's so much more movie left. Cause I knew the runtime going in and this is Park Chan-wook. There's going to be some some idea of revenge. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know what that was going to what form that was going to take, but I was like so now we have the scenario where uh, Suki is put in the mental hospital and now the story is going to start. And it didn't go the way I thought it was going to go at all, but the, I I remember being in that position where I was like, okay, so here's the inciting incident finally. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it wasn't like that at all. Mhm. Mm the other thing I really like about this sequence is what it does with space. So before this time, other than the brief moments that were with Suki with her sort of family and band of thieves before, other than that, we're, we're entirely within the manor house grounds. Mm -hmm. And these shots are very tightly trained. Um, even, even when it's a wide shot, they still have this claustrophobic feeling to them. So even if they're not technically a closely trained shot, they still feel as if 
we are too close to things. Um, almost when you're too close to something and your perspective shifts and you can't quite see what it is because you're too close. That is literally what's happening to the audience throughout this. And the scene, uh, the shots reflect that rather. So we've been in this really opulent and very carefully manicured space. And then it suddenly swapped. Uh, we're in these mm -hmm. vast long shots. It's of nature, it's of the countryside. You can see the horizon for the first time. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. So so you're engaging with nature in a different way. Before this, the only semblance of nature that we had was the cherry tree, which, of course, um, is imbued with... It's personified because Hiko tells the story of her aunt hanging herself on the tree and how it mm. is it absorbs her spirit. So it is still sort of bound to the realm of the house. But now, as you say, like we now we see the horizon and we enter a kind of a liminal space and this liminal space is characterized by a lot of different types of motion, not human mm. motion, but nature moving. So we have rolling hills. Uh, we see a car winding down a drive, but we see the wind in the trees. Mm -hmm. uh, we see wind moving through fields of grass, rushing uh, water, rushing water, staircases up the side of a mountain. Um, so we they have do this... kind of, they give you premonition of their eventual freedom when they're on the ferry. Right? You do have that moment, but the count is still there with them. It's a nice little like pre-echo. And another thing about the, the spaces, I love that, yeah, this is a departure from the manor. And they use, it just comes up a, a couple times, or maybe I only spotted it a couple times on this rewatch, but the idea of these doors opening and getting into something else. So in the second half of the movie, when Hideko is reading the pornography there's something where she's speaking about you know female anatomy and basically says like you know it opened up and they they literally like because it's a stage play set for these men um the doors open up behind her yeah. and you can sort of see out and i love that that's their escape here is they have to go through the house to get out and it's three sets of those doors so there's an alignment of like their exploration of one another or or a femininity there's something that i don't i don't necessarily have all the the nuts and bolts to put together a, a cohesive sort of film analysis on it but i know there's something at play there which also in that guardian article waters touches on she says those buildings with rooms after rooms after rooms are psychic structures water observes they echo social structures public or semi-public spaces then private then secret spaces absolutely absolutely and we get this inkling of that there are different types of secret spaces so there's the idea that they draw from pornography of the jade gate which is the yonic image mm -hmm. of the vagina and, and that's very readily apparent through the motif of doors, uh, mm -hmm. through also um, peeking through spy holes in walls earlier on. Mm -hmm. Hidako has a spy hole through which she watches Suki when she arrives. Mm -hmm. um, Suki will watch Hidako through a window. So there's this idea of some yep. sort of semi-translucent membranous portal, which is, which is a yonic image. Um, right. But then we also have this undertone of another secret place that is the basement, Uncle Kazuki's basement, mm, as yeah. this deeply ominous, ominous place. Which is introduced in this scene that we're discussing just, too. Ju just prior, yeah, just prior to this sequence, that's basically, that's another little thing where it's like, this movie's not done. There's mm -hmm. the basement and it's not until the second half where you see when she was brought down there as a child and the the nature of her aunt's death uh, or murder, not suicide yeah. was, was made clear. Um, yeah, you're right. I didn't even, it, that wasn't even occurring to me as a secret space, but, but also like a, uh, a perverted one, right. Uh, yeah. When compared to these other secret spaces that the house holds and that bodies hold, you know? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that that, that draws on what 
the Uncle Kazuki is trying to do to Hidego and what he did to um, Hidego's mother and to his wife, the aunt. You know, he, mm-hmm. he, he is a... He is a perverting force in that what he does is he sort of grotesquifies or dilutes or or um, curses these owns. other... Yeah, exactly. He mm-hmm. owns. He yeah. colonizes these spaces. Yeah. Um, and then they become... And you see at the end when you see um, he has all of these genitals pickled in jars. So we mm-hmm. realize what his real his real desire is to is the chopping up of bodies, you know? Um, possession, it's yeah. The, it's the total possession and ownership of body parts. Um, and not not people, but body parts. And I think that that's so distinct in the way that he is so excited to cut off the, the Count's fingers. So it becomes almost uh, not even sexual for him. Well, I mean, another commentary on pornography, which is often so much more focused on a single part and not necessarily the body itself. It did really align with the way that uh, the uncle treats these bodies and what his end goal of uh, of possession is i know we're kind of already out of the scene talking about the uncle in his basement one of the cool things that i read about the uncle's character was that he is a collector of fetishizations mm. and i thought that was an interesting way of putting it because and it referenced like the pickled jars of genitalia in his basement mm-hmm. and i was like oh because like you oh, then it also like that that analogy encompasses his collection of the books and the images and all the everything that he does to kind of mm-hmm. forge this uh this world of his yeah absolutely and again this is a massive tangent so we don't have to talk about this for much longer but um <laughs> one of the one of the tenets of misogyny is that women are not people right like it's that is the main thing is that not only are women to be despised under misogyny's logic but also that they're not even people they're subhuman and one of the ways that you can enforce that is ideologically through visualization. And the way that mm. that occurs is through literally chopping up women's bodies into discrete shots of body parts. Mm. That then makes it ideologically and aesthetically palatable to see women's bodies dismembered, as we see in true crime. I'm a big f- true crime fan, but they, it's incredibly exploitative of women. Um, mm. The way that there's a hyper-focus on women's disfigured bodies, um, on the erotic aspects of women's bodies seen in isolation. So uh, the genitals, the breasts, et cetera, the mm-hmm. mouth, um, but not but not seen as part of a person. So we see that play out in that that is what the uncle is. That is his end goal, right? Is yeah. is uh, the complete compartmentalizing of these people's bodies. And that's Breaking how it's not Breaking them down erotic. into assets. Absolutely, absolutely, and yeah. and and so therefore, also something he can make money off of. Even though he is this dirty old man, he wants yeah. to make money off of them. There's always got to be some profit. But one other thing that it just occurred to me that aligns with this is there's a scene in the second half where the count is giving um, the lady an art lesson, and where he's he says like, "I don't want your eyes, I don't want your hands, I don't want your ass," and he's touching each part of her. Uh, he's just saying like I just want your money so it's another thing where it's just breaking it down into like desirable body parts right yeah um a nice mirroring there and sorry Taylor I think we've both been cutting you off oh it's okay (laughs) I was just gonna add to this by just saying this the whole idea you guys are talking about is the is the symbolic importance of what an extreme close-up does is it it fragments a body into separate components Mm -hmm. and it makes us really uncomfortable and because it's rendering something so familiar unfamiliar and so everything you guys are saying just kind of fits in that same argument that is the reason why we use extreme close-ups in film is so you separate something familiar from the rest of the body. Yeah. yeah. 
Um, to jump back into the timeline of the scene, we kind of touched upon the boat and ferry. The next thing I had on my list was they're on the train ride, and Hideko is eating one grain of rice at a time as it's intercut with them walking up the, I the love mountain that. to a temple. It's beautiful. Do you guys editing. have? Do you guys have a reading well, on the eating one grain of rice at a time? Is that her being nervous or uneasy? Or I, I'm not really sure because it's given a lot of significance. It's shot very specifically, and I don't, I don't have a way to coalesce it into into my sort of take on the film. Yeah, the cultural context of that is also about etiquette and class. So mm. we're seeing here that Hidako, even in moments of um, She's completely untethered from her world. She still has these these ingrained um, behaviors of nobility that don't escape her. So it, it, has, it is a very celebrated thing if you have the ability with chopsticks to eat, to pick up one grain of rice at a time. It mm. is seen as the height of sophistication. Mm. Only nobility can really do this. Um, and it, it's, it's basically like knowing, knowing um, just knowing your etiquette really, really well. So that's the context of why she does that, and we don't mm. see so, the Count and Suki. So was this way. in contrast to the way that the Count was eating beside her because he's meant to be... Like, because he's kind of barbarically he's lower, eating. He's lower class. Yeah. But, he, like, I feel like he puts on a really good facade throughout the film as an upper class Japanese person, even though he's a Korean farmhand. Mm-hmm. But when he's hungry, he, when he's hungry, yeah. he's hungry. When he's hungry, he's a farmhand again. Like, in that scene, it looks like all of his facade is washed away because it, it almost feels like once he marries Lady Hideko, or once that train is literally rolling, then it's almost like he kind of is half assing his facade. Yeah. In his role at that point, he doesn't I like that. Need to f- full, like fully dive into that like and gentlemanly we see world him anymore. More disheveled as well. Uh, yes. When they're in the, I keep wanting to call it a motel because it just feels like such a motel. But when they're when they're in the inn, um, yeah. and this is something I want to talk about. How it, this is for me, this is the peak noir element of it, and this is why I think that this is a noir film more than Ooh. really anything else. But we see him getting more and more disheveled. And so I think that scene of Hidako eating the rice is doing two things. One, I think it is showing, you know, who who really has class and who doesn't. Showing that for her, this is her life. Like, this isn't an mm. act. She really, even though these things are taught and you, you learn them from a mm-hmm. young age, this is who she is. She mm-hmm. can't, even if she's probably, she's probably starving as well. They, they've been on the run. Yeah. She's going to eat one grain at a time because that's what she does compared to the two poor Koreans uh, who don't who weren't brought up in that way. But I think the fact that it is interstitched with the... Um, it's interstitched with the climb up the stairs. There is something there about... Uh, there's a picking up of speed and therefore a picking up of tension that occurs both in the pace of her eating and mm. in the path they make up... In, in, in their journey up the stairs. That I step think by what step, it, grain by grain. Absolutely, absolutely. And I, it picks up speed. There's an exponential increase there that I think plays into this tension, this feeling of we're hurtling towards something and we don't quite know what it is. You're right. It may just be, be a, a matter of editing, right? Like Park wants this we're moving, we're going, like, we're getting... The wedding is is one, maybe, you know, one part of the the peak of this con is the wedding and then the, the mental institution. And uh, we, we have to get to that wedding, where I do love that the only parts of the vow that they have us sit in on 
are all the sins that they've committed. It's do not steal, do not lie, do yeah. not commit adultery. <laughs> it's great. And then you have them exchange, they exchange rings and a means of suicide. Mm-hmm. at the it's Suicide and, and later used for control. So I love the idea that the incredibly uh, cynical, but but probably pretty fair idea that if you're gonna if you're gonna get married, you may as well have a way to or an easy way to off yourself or to drug your <laughs> husband if you need to, right? Like the 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 ring isn't what Hideko was waiting for. She has her hand held out for the vial of uh, of opium. Mm-hmm. And there's something there about how she's entering. She's had this moment of freedom in this liminal space, a sort of voidic space, and then she enters back into an institution. The institution being that of marriage rather than being mm-hmm. um, her uncle's ward. So so there is a sense there of entering back into a space in which she feels the only way out is suicide. And we see that how she thinks that the, previously she tries to kill herself because she thinks the only way out of it is through suicide. Then she's free. Then she enters back into this space, even though she has a plan to get out of it. Her experience of those institutionalized spaces is that there is one ultimate escape and it is it is death. Right. I already forgot that. Yeah, at this point, her and Suki have already had the scene where she tries to hang herself. So when she's asking, when she holds her hand out for the opium, she's already not, she's already past the point where the Count had basically said, like, I'll give you this vial, so then you'll you'll never have to go to the basement. You'll always have an escape plan. But by the time she expects it, she's already got a different plan in place, and she's no longer suicidal. But we, what's great is we don't know that yet. Yeah, that's the tricky part about discussing a scene like this is because we could discuss it in two completely different ways. One, the first time we're watching it, or another way we could discuss it is with all the context added in that we know happens narratively before this, but within the movie, it does not happen before this. Yeah. Yeah. So we are pretty clueless at this point the first time going through the film. And I remember just being like, what did he just put in her hand at the wedding? Uh, And... It, it's one of those things. It's like what you mentioned earlier with the rope, Haley, hanging from the tree. You're like, it's so quick and the movement is so fluid and the way the film moves is so nice. And I don't know. It's just got such a steady movement. Yeah. yeah but you you'll forget, forget about it after you see it, but you'll remember it when you see it again, which is that's a that's a real talent. It's just it shows once again, coming back to praising Park Chan-wook, it, it shows brilliant direction. It shows brilliant planning, mm-hmm. uh, just ability to understand if I show this here and then we wait half an hour, the audience is going to know what this is when I bring it back and explain to them what this is. And then they're going to recontextualize. To have that much ability in knowing your craft and then trusting your audience that much is just is why this movie, another one of these, the reasons why this movie is so good. Yeah, he peppers in these signifieds that we don't know what they are signifying yet. Um, yes. And he he really plays fast and loose with those. He he it's it's he's really not precious with them. He just he's throwing you signifieds, and you, you're you're scrambling to pick up what they are. Like okay, maybe the rope is like maybe the rope means it's like a metaphor, and like maybe the rope is there because he had to go feel scared. Like you have no idea what's going yeah. on here. You're mm-hmm. trying to signify these images, and you can't. Um, and it's only when we get into part two and we see all of part two that the signifieds become. Um, Oh, sorry, that the signifiers become tethered to a signified that we can then make sense of. Mm-hmm. And right. so he's playing with, with the space and the objects in the space in a, in a really particular way that I think is, it, it heightens the fact that this is a con on everyone and ultimately the audience, mm-hmm. as Tim right. already said, that um, we are also being hoodwinked 
through the mm -hmm. actual evidence that we're given to try to understand that evidence is all is is already on shaky foundations and I, I just thought of another one of these objects too, these deceptive objects, and it's uh the hair the hair clip that she gets. Mm -hmm. The butterfly before. hair clip. Yeah, she she gets it from someone in her family before she leaves her uh, Korean home at the beginning, mm -hmm. and then she gets it from Lady Hidako before she's admitted to the mental hospital. Yeah, she gets it back, and we I think at that point we still don't really have any other context of what that is, right? We it's do literally know, just been brought up. We do know a little bit. We know because when the count comes to visit, it is in the like the thief matriarch. It's in her hair, and he takes it out of her hair and he unlocks a secret again, another secret space. Mm -hmm. He unlocks. Right a drawer in the stairs and he brings out these um really precious uh items that then he mm -hmm. just uses to to sort of illustrate a point he just he does yeah. that to show i know your secrets i know yeah, yeah. what's here mm -hmm. then we, then yes uh then we understand that the clip it, it can work as like a pickpocket tool but i think you're right that we move on again we move on so quickly from that and that's that's almost in, an, in another lifetime for us that flashback yeah. to the count it's so far away, we've had to deal with so much after that, that we sort of forget what it's about. And when Hidako gives it to Suki, it feels sentimental rather than mm. utilitarian. We feel yes. like this is Hidako feeling guilty for double-crossing Suki, um, rather than it being she needs this to get out of the insane asylum later on. So I think that you're right that... And I think that's another example of Park Chan-wook just being an absolute master of his craft is that he sets up that he's giving us these signifiers that don't have a signified, but then he gives us a signifier with a signified and then makes us forget it. Yeah. And then yeah. remember it. Yeah, so much control. It's just brilliant. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So we then we move to our wedding night, which I actually think from Sookie's perspective is treated fairly in a in a perfunctory sense no 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 knock against uh director park but i think they really dig into um how hideko and the count consummate their marriage from their perspective on Suki's side it's just a matter of hoodwinking us to make us really believe that she's tormented by the idea that they're being together and she's singing that song about her zither but but right before that is again another little slapsticky moment where he um she's looking into the room into like the bridal suite and the count comes and just pushes her face away, yeah. which I mean, there's that. And there's also like, um, the it's uncle, slapsticky for sure. The uncle in another scene where, where, um, Hideko is a child and her aunt are laughing at the Japanese word for penis. He, to like punish them, he goes up and just holds their faces and like literally manhandles them for like 10 seconds, which I know is like, it's very oppressive. It's, it's very, invasive but it's also played with some slapstick to it there's like sound effects as he takes his his gloves his gloved hands off their faces that's so interesting that you read it that way um i find that the most difficult scene to watch oh okay yeah, i was gonna i was gonna say something yeah. similar yeah, yeah. I, I thought the sound design really made it come across slapsticky to me i think i think it's complex i you know i, I think yeah. that it i think that it invites it invites sort of to be received in an ambiguous way mm. for me why it's difficult is because there has been comment like there's been okay let me try and break it down there has been something humorous that is diegetic so the aunt mm. and, and hidako are laughing at something and they're sharing a moment mm -hmm. the uncle sees this happening and he's like we need to, i need to control that entirely 
So yeah. he mm-hmm. he punishes that moment of human relationship that they have. Mm-hmm. And I think in another context, those same actions would read as comical. But for mm-hmm. me, because we already have something diegetically funny that happened, it reads mm-hmm. as um, one of the only moments that the film almost punishes the viewer for mm-hmm. kind of feeling safe in that moment. And I think that right. this is complemented by the fact that the ant when that glove is again the the ant has a very small cameo role ex, like an excellent performance the the glove is taken away from her face and we see the whites all around her eyes and she breathes mm-hmm. in incredibly deeply through her nose and we hear mm-hmm. that sort of glottal nasal mm-hmm. oh she's breathing in so hard that the skin in her nose is actually contracting um mm-hmm. and we see her face turn and then I think pretty much the next scene is her her dead face hanging from mm-hmm. uh, the cherry tree. So for me, I think that that's a moment. It's not that it doesn't invite comedy, but I think that that scene is trying to remind you that the humor comes with consequences. Mm. Yeah. And and we might not never know what those consequences are. Yeah, I mean, well, they 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 start part two with her very clearly it's in the aftermath of her talking back to her uncle and he's striking her with those, those heavy bells, which again, the sound design is very brutal. And I think there's a lot more surface level pain that at least I could connect with where when you go to this one and he's not striking them with, with metallic objects or stuff like that, it did read lighter to me, but a hundred percent there's, I think, I think you're clearly just in, in, in action. You're right that there's many ways to read that scene and there's many ways to react to it. Yeah, and again, and yeah. it, it doesn't punish you for it being ambiguous, but mm. it's sort of reminding you that we can't necessarily stay comfortable with what we think is going on, which is which is a through line through the film. As we don't, we as soon as we're comfortable with what we think is going on, something else happens. Something else, mm. another another signifier is dropped, or something happens in the plot. We never fully feel safe, even mm. though that the film. I always say it's a scary film with a happy ending. Like you're going to be fine watching it. Everything works out. Okay. But going in the first time, you don't know that there is this real feeling of dread, even though it's peppered with these very funny moments. Yeah. For that scene, I just felt like, uh, the sense of inescapability kind of enters in when the uncle enters that frame. Uh, because I, I kind of agree with both of you. I was, chuckling through that scene you know like when uh suki and her aunt or sorry hitiko and her aunt are going through like the book and all the terminology and they're kind of laughing and i'm kind of like chuckling because you can see the uncle's discomfort he's doing like the pen thing which we already know is like his tick yeah and Mm -hmm. and then when he enters that frame because it's all like shot from in front of them and that's like really dominating and that kind of removed the humor for me. That kind of is like a reminder of the inescapability that the characters feel in that moment. And uh, I wanted to like kind of harken back to our episode on Sicario actually, Tim, because that moment mm-hmm. is like held on, they hold on it and there's yeah. not really a way to direct a scene like that without actual physicality. So mm-hmm. you actually probably have to have an actor with his hand on, like, and you got to keep in mind the young actor who's playing the young Hidako is a young actor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah a and child. Sh- and yeah, and 
Haley, you, you've acted enough to know like that they probably were in control of all the, a lot of the movement on their faces, but it's still an extreme moment of physicality. And it's mm-hmm. like, like you said, Tim, it's like 10 to 15 second long shot. Long, so there's no, that, there's no cheating a shot like yeah. this. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the, that's the thing. Like I, this is, I think this is fascinating because I do just think like the uncle's performance and how long it lasts and that sound design almost approach like like a like a three stooges level like mm. what one of them would do to the other two but you're right within the context of the scene it's so much more oppressive it's so it's so much more of a dry reminder of the reality at play here and of course it's a domineering man in, in control of, of two female bodies so uh complex is is the way is is definitely the way to describe Absolutely. it Absolutely. yeah yeah, like I'm even laughing a little bit into the moment, but then as soon as you it like starts holding and it's like, oh, this isn't over yet, then it's kind of, it just mm. kind of becomes more daunting as the mm-hmm. moment goes longer. I think. Um, but yeah, that's yeah. I don't know. I really like that discussion. That was a uh, that's interesting that we all read it that way. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, back a, to the a, scene we're yeah, supposed yeah. to be talking. A solid <laughs> a solid tangent. Uh, back to the count pushing away Sookie's face, which I think is played far more for comedy that's than, than what we were talking about. Push, yeah. yeah. Because again, that guy is that guy has a great tone and a great take, and just like that sort of stoic mission forward look on his face when he pushes Suki away and and enters the you know again the the bridal suite, um, I think it's pretty silly. Yeah, um, and there's they really play really well in those scenes in the inn with the uh, the use of shadow. They're in a Japanese inn with paper mm-hmm. walls and so we can see shadows outside of them they can sort of there's a moment where uh the count uh calls for suki to to come and talk to him mm-hmm. and she is brought over by the innkeeper who then we see her shadow kneeling by the wall a little bit and then she gets up and go and then they start speaking uh we also play a lot with um face as you said like faces peeking through the walls so they really try they invite you to think a lot about of voyeurism how, yeah absolutely they invite you to think about how malleable that space is too well Even i think that, that 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 directly plays into like the victorian you know sort of gay period yep. any any honestly any victorian stuff is just like constantly just a conversation and then it pulls out and you realize there was like you know a, a, a servant was at the door listening right like upstairs downstairs downtown yeah. abbey all that stuff yeah, is just full of that so i love that they're like we're not even going to have someone at, at the at the keyhole they're literally on the other side of a paper wall yeah right i like that there's that little narrative beat where they where there's a bit of narration that su- suggests the innkeeper was starting to spy on them and then we get like that. Re- I really love that little montage of like two, three minutes of the innkeeper kind of spying on them through little cracks and doorways, and it it, was, it just really made that space feel intimate, exciting, a little unsafe. But also, I felt like the main characters were going to be okay, so I I felt like I felt okay. Yeah, there's kind of a vibe shift at that point after the after the wedding night, where you have uh, Suki doing voiceover. Again, going forward, we think, you know, we're, we're getting her truth and then go, looking at it backwards, you know, again, she's acting for us and for the Count. But he's, she's like, the Count had the housekeeper spying on us to make sure we didn't elope or anything. And they're like stealing all these kisses and, and try and they're again, like the Count is doing all the legal stuff to get the inheritance uh, changed into cash and working with the mental institution guys. Um, and they're just sort of passing the time by dressing each other up, doing what we've already known them to do. 
but it, but I love that it kind of culminates at the scene where he drops this big leather bag of money, and I think you get actually POV shots from each person, or at least just Hideko and Suki, kind of like that sh- a little bit of shaky cam, like a proper eye eye line shot, yeah. where like this money means something different to every single person in this scene. Yeah, and we don't quite know. Again, it's another incident where we think we know what it means to them, but we don't. We don't actually mm. know. And they use a, they introduced the POV shaky cam so well to unsettle us there because that is used primarily when Hideko and Suki are alone together, either in the sex scene it's used really frequently, um, but also just when the two of them are in a space together talking. So mm-hmm. by reintroducing the shaky cam there, it's also unsettling what we think is happening because it, it reintroduces this other form of intimacy that we think we've now left behind but we actually, but then we find out later we actually haven't. Um, but this is this is the scene for me, and I'm interested to know what you guys think. For me, this is like peak noir. I really do think that this film, it's many genres, but I think that one of the genres it definitely is is noir. It's almost like a kind of like a, a retro noir rather than a neo noir mm-hmm. by drawing on the tropes of a period piece. But for me, this is where it becomes really noir y. So you, you calling it like a motel really yeah. locked in that genre for me. Cause when you think, when you just transpose it to that different time period and you're like, yep. he's out taking care of the money, the con is almost done, which is a thing in a lot of modern con movies where there's that, there's that brief pause before the con is complete. And then that's usually where the twist is. Yeah. Cause you're just kind of like, well, now we got to wait for like, I have to hide in the wall for, you know, 24 hours or we have to wait for the money to come through or that we have to fake our death and be gone for two weeks. There is this kind of necessary breathing space where they're just killing time. And uh, And then the way the count comes back, like the way the count kind of makes his entrance back in the in the middle of the rain. I I think that fits really into a noir setting, too. If you just if you change the setting to nighttime, that's a noir seen visually too i'll see if i can find it online but one of the best takes i i that that i keep in mind about noir is um this person who suggested that noir is largely especially any of them that have a femme fatale but even some that don't noir is about men being truly terrified of women entering and controlling their spaces yeah and i think that really aligns with this movie oh absolutely yeah yeah and there's something here about that this space is quasi-urban it's a commercial space it has these seedy undertones even though it's a beautiful setting of Mm -hmm. as you said of the innkeeper sort of spying on them she comes in and we see the blood on the sheets and she, so she, we bring in this other character who is morally ambiguous, right? Who she doesn't play a big part, but we're sort of, she's part of the landscape of, oh, we're in a different kind of space now with different types of seedy characters. It's an alien space. Um, and even when the officials come in, which is such a noir thing of having like doctors come in who may be or who may or may not be corrupt. It's such a massive thing in like sort of psychological noir to have some sort of official arm come in that shows us how corrupt institutions are. Mm. Uh, So having that come in at that moment and then also having, we don't know whose psyche is unraveling, but someone's psyche is unraveling. And we find out, oh, maybe it's actually the audience's psyche is unraveling and we don't know what's (laughs) going on. But for me, those those come together so beautifully in this sequence. Um, And it's really just for a moment that it becomes this noir-like scene but they come together so beautifully in a way that I think has to be self-conscious. It has to be in that moment, mm-hmm. Director Park is saying, we're now, we're now playing with 
the genre tropes of noir because he plays so readily with genre tropes of so many different types of genres. Yeah. Uh, thriller, heist. Yeah. yeah. So to me, it, it just feels like it has to be a self-conscious thing happening here. And I think it's, I think it's powerfully effective in the way mm-hmm. that it, it, it uh, sets us up to then engage and experience the bait and switch and the betrayal outside of the hospital doors. Mm-hmm. Well, and I mean, before that, I do love this little scene where there's a great, there's a bit of a something that's difficult to track in it that then only makes sense when you know the full story. But it's where Sookie is talking to the two men from the mental institution that are brought by who have great looks. I love those like kind of like sullen, pale guys. They're both wearing, you know, Western suits. And they're asking her like third person questions about the lady. And she's answering them. And Hideko is in earshot. And I think the first time watching that, you're like, wait, they're arguing that she has to be in the mental institution, but she can hear it. How does that work? And then you realize, looking back, those two men have already been told Sookie is the lady. And and so she's they think that she's an insane person describing herself in the third person as this other woman. And that only locks in after the fact. And beforehand, you're just kind of like, how is this? What is it kind of just unsettles you? And then the net and then that cross. I think that 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 unease crosses right over through to the car ride to the mental institution yeah absolutely and and we i think all that that makes it more noir too yeah absolutely yeah the confusion it really reminds me of this is a bogart film dark passages or dark passageways that is it's one of it's this trope of facial reconstruction surgery so someone is uh they're on the run or they get horrifically disfigured and they have to get a new face and then his new face is humphrey bogart's face Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's Bogey and Bacall, Lucky. Lauren Bacall. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's a good, that's a good face. Yeah. yeah. It's also Face Off. Um, the, yeah. the best movie ever made. Yeah. Um, and so there's this idea of, of, of face swapping and faciality going on here. And we see that in Hidako and Suki's clothing as well, where they both, they start to dress more similarly. So Suki's attire becomes more, uh, pristine and more ladylike and Hidako's attire becomes slightly less opulent so they sort of meet each other in the middle in their clothing mm. and the reason why later on we find out or right away we find out rather is because um we're saying that Su- suki is the one who is locked away so yeah, they you have to reasonably closer. be able to make that trade absolutely right? it has absolutely. to make sense so there's this idea here of people losing their subjectivity as well they're they're right. so locked up in the the facade of the different cons they're all playing on each other that they begin to lose their sense of self uh there's a sense of intersubjective change going on there and we're only aware of very very small parts of it right away no absolutely and i think you you're right like when they they lose themselves in in this con that probably starts when you have that money bag dropped and they're all just sort of looking at each other thinking different things and thinking different things that the audience is thinking through to the conversation with the guys from the institution and then the car which is very uneasy you have more of that shaky pov sookie is very distressed going forward in the movie you're like yeah she doesn't want to betray hitiko she loves her and going backwards you realize they're just they're really just pulling pulling one over on the count and then i love i absolutely love the set of the entrance to this mental institution where it's this. I love how you don't see anything in its entirety. It's all like, it's just this corner massive it's a, blocks. It's, 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 it's like five corners yeah. 
blocking yeah. in an area and then once you actually properly separate Sookie into it Ugh. any shot on her is brick walls yeah from the sides there are side shots there are front on shots and 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 then any shot on Hideko and the Count have sunlight and greenery and and roads leading uh, yeah away, and a road exactly yeah. yeah I think that the setting is phenomenal I don't know if you guys had the same reaction but it's just I think at this point in the movie, when you're so used to the Japanese architecture, seeing like this, the dark gray, almost black brick building, mm-hmm. kind of that's like, you don't even see the top of it. It just is overwhelming you in like a visual sense. Very far. That to me was, re- it really threw me off visually at this point in the movie because you, mm-hmm. you, you were what, an hour in and haven't seen anything close to this type of architecture yet and it just feels so scary and cold and foreign and the last place that you want your characters that you're cheering for to be yeah director park uses every trick in the bag to make this 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 twist really hit because there is you're right like it's architecture we haven't seen yet and and a setting that is so specific i don't even know how you would design a building like that or if the idea is that Mm -hmm that's what that space is designed for. Like it's difficult to get out of once you're in it, like the way you have those woven baskets that you use to catch like crawfish. It has one small opening and they can find the opening to get in. They can't find the opening to get out. It's something to do with this sort of prey mentality. Um, and the other thing is that the moment they realize that they're calling her Suki, uh, lady Hideko, the music changes too. There's a really distinct music cue and it really, it really gets your, Get your hairs up on edge, right? When, when I was watching it this time, I was trying to remember so much of my first experience or just trying to put myself in that position of if I didn't know what the plot was going to be, where would I actually realize the deception? And it's not until that music sting where yes. the two nurses grab Suki. Mm-hmm. It's in that exact moment because she doesn't realize it and you still think that the guards are talking to Lady Hideko over Suki's shoulder. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and it, there's it, a change. It's just wild. Yeah. Yeah. There's a there's a change in the the quality of the motion too. Until that moment, the movement has been very fluid. Uh, there's been a kind of a gentle quality to it. Even when they are, they sort of walk Suki backwards, behind into the gates into the sort of like octagonal cage. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't realize yet, you know, our hackles aren't up about, about this. There's a hug. Su- uh, Hideko and Suki have a hug. There's, again, the shaky cam comes back in. Things are sort of in a slight soft focus. And the theme is playing. And we're familiar with the theme music at this point of the score. And then when the music changes, the motion also changes. And there's a really incredible, it's almost imperceptible snap towards one side that Suki's actor does where her movement changes entirely. And this is why, she I mean, she, she won um, a massive award for this film and, and she absolutely deserved it because her whole body changes in one go. She just sort of turns like several degrees to the right and the way that her jaw suddenly changes, we we are then brought into the realize that she's feeling like a trapped animal. And we're, we're brought in so closely and it's the music and it's this tiny imperceptible change in her behavior. No one else around her changes because they've all been doing the same thing. It's it's her subtle change and it really only happens in her face and her shoulders. And it, it really is, it's an astounding thing to watch. It's why one of the reasons why that scene I think is, for me, it perpetually rewatchable. 
because there's there's so much to look at in that actor's choices. I feel like unlike uh, unlike a lot of movies that have a twist, this is something that you can continuously reinvest yourself in because the beats are so well received by the audience. You 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 are part of the con, and like we've said this many times, just like the characters are seemingly constantly in, mm-hmm. you're always at the mercy of what the characters know more than you yeah Mm -hmm. i mean this is this is a load-bearing part of the script right like this is what you have to nail uh in con movies noir movies anything where there is a control of information like this and and you have a hinge point or or a fulcrum and uh, yeah just like we've been saying all month like this is this is why director park's one of the best in the business right like he just he nails it he uses every single tool he's got to make this count um, and and the performances uh, back that up and and even elevate it further, especially in the case of uh, Kim Tae Ri. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. uh, are we good to wrap up the scene here? Then uh, I just want to point out one of my favorite lines in the movie: Lady Hideko saying, "My poor lady, she's gone nutty." Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what the translation is. I don't know. I don't know yeah, to what nutty extent is they, funny. Yeah, but like calling anything nutty. I mean, you know, Matt. Matt, what's his face calls calls it nutty in Sicario, Sicario yeah. too. So there's got a little nutty in there. Yeah, yeah. What's great about that, that too is her language changes, her dialect changes, and we never see Hidako be anyone other than herself. Really, even when she's lying, she's being herself. But in that moment, in that one line, she really embodies this sort of like humble, lowly maid, and so. Um, I'm sure if you are a native Japanese or Korean speaker, this comes across more clearly, but even watching when you don't speak the language, you can tell that there's a dialect shift going on there, Mm -hmm. where she is speaking in a less cultivated, cultured dialect. Um, And there's something very pleasurable, even though at that moment you're shocked at the betrayal, you're feeling betrayed, there is still something very pleasurable about watching someone play a character when you know they're playing a character. Uh, it's, It's incredibly satisfying to watch. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, I mean, I think we've we've covered a great deal of this movie, maybe even more than our format can usually bear. <laughs> so I think with that, uh, no need no need to conclude. We love Director Park and we love this movie. And uh, with that, we can shift over into our shout outs. We always call out something that isn't in our scene that we wanted to talk about. I thought we did that throughout today. Yeah, pretty yeah. sure we've done like 40,000 <laughs> shout outs, but we've got three more, one, one apiece. Uh, Haley, what did you want to highlight? Oh, I guess for me, it's got to be in, I believe it's the second time round in this sex scene. Um, I don't know if this is going to make it to edit. I really like when they scissor. (laughs) I think it is a fantastic and very sweet and quite emotional moment where you get a sudden wide shot um, on a very, very explicit sex act. But what Mm. we see emerging in that is eye contact they hold hands they love each other and i think that that yeah. that moment i find it's the moment that out of every part in the film it it just it honestly moves me to tears even though it's this erotic moment because we're suddenly overswept by how in love with each other they are um and it's hard to talk about sex scenes in that way because everything is overshadowed by the sex and i think it's a sign of excellent performances excellent uh directing that in that moment we can have so many conflicting emotional responses one of them being being profoundly moved by the love story that we're seeing unfold mm-hmm. so mine is you know, scissoring I, <laughs> <laughs> I think i think that's definitely worth pointing out because like it's um 
it's it's extremely well filmed like there's a lot of power in that moment when they do uh, join hands and i think just like you know some of the stuff we'd said about portrait of a lady on fire it's this example of the way that this is something that can really only happen here like in in heterosexual sex there's usually a giver and a receiver for for lack of of more explicit terms and this is something where you have this exact symmetry this exact equality um that isn't necessarily an option in every other form of relationship and and something that's mirrored at the end literally mirrored at the end where i love that the um the layout of their cabin on the sh- on the cruise ship yeah is is like they're they're on like a like an old victorian like couch that has mirrored humps and there are portholes and it's just like this visual idea of of symmetry and equality yeah. in this in this partnership but that's not my shout out my shout out um <laughs> is another sexy scene uh just one that i think is powerful for how surprising it is um it's yeah. a scene where hideko is is bathing yes. and, and her handmaiden at the time suki is bathing her and she she mentions that one of her teeth is sharp and it's hurting her and suki gets a a metal thimble and puts her thumb into her mouth and and files down her tooth and what a shocking scene in terms of movie tropes in terms of what you could make erotic surprisingly like when there's dental stuff in movies it's horror we all we covered it in old boy um marathon man if you talk about tooth scenes in movies it's almost always because it's something that makes you cringe and makes you tense up and the idea that like i just love the vulnerability at play here again we talked before about the sort of mother and child caretaker and and person being taken care of all of this at play it it becomes this very complex quiet scene and i i love how it's filmed and with many of the great scenes in this it goes on for a little bit longer than you think it will so it invites you to follow through on the emotions and thoughts you're having Mm mm-hmm you have to really there's a second stay with part them. to it yeah, yeah i agree there's like a first part of the scene and then where you think the scene would normally end then there's like a whole other component to the scene where it's almost well, like it, the same action but now you're living in it but i also just mean like if you were gonna if the scene is supposed to be sexy and it's a woman in the bath and another woman bathing her like you give it you give that script to a hundred screenwriters male or female or otherwise and it, it's going to go in a couple directions Never in a million years would I guess that it's going to be, I'm going to file down your tooth with a thimble and it's going to be touching and, and, and pretty charged as well. So yeah. I, I just think that's, that's a real achievement. It's a, it's the scene that, that comes to mind when I think of this movie, cause it's just something you never expect. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Really well put. It's like, I think it's one of the first moments in the movie where you realize what you're getting yourself into as a movie. You realize, oh, this is going to make me feel some stuff. Yeah, this isn't yeah. your 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 daddy's period gay drama. Yeah, or or or, or your mommy's, I guess. Yeah. But yeah, maybe it is your mommy's yeah, gay period drama, but it's it not your daddy's. <laughs> the other thing that the, that scene evokes for me is also this idea of the secret places, right? This idea of mm. entering into a secret mm-hmm. space and a space that is not only secret as an intimate, but it's a space that we, as you said, we don't know it could be erotic in this way, and it becomes erotic while we right. watch it. So the sort of the secret of it is unfolded to us. And as Tay said, as it, like yeah. we now we sort of, we get over oh, in for something pretty, pretty special mm-hmm. here. If they can turn this mm-hmm. into this moment. Whoa! I just I don't know if this was obvious, but I only just realized now. There's a whole thing where Hitko, as a kid, has to associate the taste of metal with pain. 
Mm-hmm. I didn't I didn't realize that until yeah. now. That's another well, thing that plays into this. And and just again, like, yeah, like mouth. Sorry. OK, we're getting way oh, too no, into no, the weeds I here. Oh, I was just saying, like, it's I thought just Taylor cyclical. was telling me to pick it up. He's like, he's saying, let's go. No, I think you're I just, saying it all yeah, comes like, together. Mouths, yeah. mouths in movies, I think, are more often coded as vulnerable points than they are, even though obviously the they're they're used for kissing and many other acts and stuff like that. But more often it's in Alien, it's where the alien enters you and yeah. it's where your teeth are. And it's when you go to the dentist, they put needles in your mouth. It's all these things that we associate with being uncomfortable and something you wouldn't want to get into and a secret place that is something you protect and you don't let other people into. And all this, this scene turns it all on its head. Yeah. There's something that the fear of the orifice becomes the desire of the orifice. I think all those preconceptions about that vulnerability are what make a scene that flips it on its head so powerful. Mm-hmm. Because we, I don't know, visually you just don't see something that tra- can transfix you and change your mind about something so uh, like innate, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Never in a million years would I guess that's where the scene was going yeah. or that there could nope. be a scene like this. It's something truly, uh, like, profound, I'd say. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, Taylor, what do you got? Something a little bit juicier? <laughs> Mine's super quick. It's when uh, <laughs> Count Fujiwara takes a bite of a peach right in Suki's face. And it is, I guess, it's the best... I will not say it's the best peach interaction in any film. It is the best peach bite. It gives it gives uh, uh it gives that other movie a run for its money though. This is but, a juice. This peach explodes. Like, I know that the way he bites that would have been so messy. They, there's no way they could have had another line of dialogue in the scene. They would have had to clean yeah. this actor's face up a bit because yeah. it's there's so much juice that just launches off this peach. But how do they test to find the juiciest peach? Bite. You know, like they I don't. I, to... I wonder. I wonder if he had like if they had peach juice in his mouth before he bites it and like yeah. he bites and spits or something like this is top tier prop work. Yeah. Yeah. He really got to know that peach. Like it's a large peach. <laughs> so you can kind of be like, okay, they found a really ripe juicy one, but think of just doing the multiple takes of that. That'd have been really fun. Yeah. yeah. It always stands out as like, because you do get to see it twice too. And you're like, Oh damn, it's, it is juicy. Mm-hmm. Another conversation I think one could have about this film is the relationship to food. As we've already talked about with the rice mm-hmm. um, and where the count is sort of, we see him come to light a little bit around food at the dinner table with the peach, with the rice. So that, there's not time for that here, but someone could have that conversation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, anyone, anyone listening to this, let us know in the comments if there's like a, you know, a 40,000 word essay on the use of food in Park Chan-wook's films. Uh, we we want to read Please. it. Um, so that's our shout outs. Uh, just before we get to our recommendations, do you want to let you know that next episode's movie as voted by our listeners is Moneyball. We're going to celebrate the end of the baseball lockout by doing two baseball movies next month. So check out Moneyball Canadian listeners. It's on Netflix, American listeners. Uh, you can find it somewhere. Uh, I'll put that in the show <laughs> notes too, but I didn't look it up for this. <laughs> and uh, then we'll get to our recommendations. Um, I uh, I just very coincidentally we had the, the return of a uh, a very high profile erotic thriller director uh, just uh, just last night I watched his latest movie Adrian Lin who did Unfaithful Indecent Proposal Fatal Attraction uh, so many movies like that returned after I think a twenty year hiatus with the movie Deep Water uh, based on a Patricia Highsmith novel that's the um, uh, Ripley movies are based on her novels as well. Um, uh, it's a it's a movie with Ben Affleck and Anna de Armas. Um, 
it's a it's a sexy thriller it's is is he is he killing the men that she's having affairs with is he not who knows it was it was a fun ride i'd recommend it all right yeah and Haley, my recommendation is a movie that i think is almost impossible to find but if you find it it's really worth it it's called Different for Girls by Richard Spence. It's a 96, it's a um, Irish, UK, and Canadian funded film. It's a, Ooh. this is on the theme of gay subversion. So this is a rom-com about a trans woman and her longtime best friend who she knew from school when she went to an all boys school. And it's the kind of film that, it's from, it's from the 90s. It's riddled with problematic language, takes, ideas, but what it's really trying to do is show what trans happiness can look like. And for me, this and The Handmaiden are sort of like spiritual sisters because they're both taking a very well-known genre. In the case of Different for Girls, it's a rom-com. And they're putting it on its head to talk about issues in a way that doesn't berate the audience and that actually celebrates these ideas of difference. It's probably my favorite rom-com. It's the only rom-com I actually like. Um, mm. So obviously it's my favorite. If you can mm. find it, it's a great film. It's got Rupert Graves as one of the leads, Ooh. who people will know from the Sherlock show and also mm -hmm. from A Room with a View, if you watch Merchant Library films. <laughs> um, and Steve McIntosh is the lead. Yeah. Right, okay. yeah, no, um, according to Just Watch, it is on Hoopla. Uh, Amazing. So again, probably not the highest streaming quality, but it sounds like one of those ones you're not going to find anywhere else. So yeah. I, I, would, I would check it out in 720p. I'll link it in the show notes. That's a really good recommendation, Haley. Never heard of that, and mm -hmm. uh, I think it's worth like I don't know if you mentioned the year, but 1996. Mm -hmm. That's mm -hmm. uh, that's pretty ahead of its time for yeah. the subject matter. Yeah, it is. Love that. It, it is a fantastic movie. It it is a fantastic movie. I everyone should go watch it. <laughs> Great. We'll uh, we'll make sure we have a link for where you can find it in the description. Definitely. And uh, Tay, what do you got? So I've flip flopped a couple times on mine, and uh, just. Haley mentioning this one made me think of a different movie that I uh, got to experience in actually I think it was my third year of university and uh, it's this little gem of a movie called The Ballad of Little Joe. It's from 1993 and it's directed by Maggie Greenwald uh, and it stars Susie Amy and Ian McKellen's actually in it uh, along with another actor who's really awesome named Bo Hopkins uh, and it this is a kind of a gay subversion movie too. It's more so uh, honestly, it's probably one of the best essays on a reversal of the male gaze because it's about a a woman who's pretending who is cross dressing as a male cowboy to basically not be kicked out of this cowboy's house, and then a lot of the ideas of the male gaze, which Haley brought up in this podcast uh, by Laura Mulvey, it's a very famous film uh, essay. A lot of the ideas of this about male gaze are completely reversed, and instead it's a woman who's dressed as a male observing a male in a very sexual way. Uh, and it kind of flips a lot of these conventions on its head in a really compelling way because it's also using typically very masculine Western tropes against themselves. Uh, it's a really cool movie. Uh, highly recommend. Uh, once again, that's Maggie Greenwald's 1993 movie, The Ballad of Little Joe. Fantastic. Well, with that, uh, we're going to wrap up the episode. Thank you so much, Haley for being here I think you really made this fantastic discussion and one of my favorite feelings of discussions which is that 
we could have kept going for like three times as long yeah. and uh, yes. we really had to had to rein ourselves <laughs> in and focus on the on the big stuff this was a lot of fun thank you so much for having me and letting me talk about um my obsession which is the handmaiden <laughs> well hopefully we can find another movie to have you on for because this is this was great like tim said it was really refreshing getting your opinions on this movie uh knowing that you've been a fan of this pretty much since it came out uh, it was an obvious choice to have you on and yeah. we really appreciate all your insight Thanks. I, yeah, I would love that too. Uh, yeah, yeah. I'm a big fan, a long time listener, first time. <laughs> well, you let us know if you're a psychotic fan of anything else, and we'll try to get it in the schedule. In it. the meantime, uh, thanks everyone for listening. Uh, follow us on SSC Pod uh, on Instagram. You can email us at uh, singleservingcinema at gmail.com with your comments or insights. And uh, if you listen to us on iTunes, we'd love a review and a star rating. But uh, with that, we'll catch you uh, for some baseball next month. Listen for those bells. Mm-hmm.